Once again, this morning we return in our studies of Scripture to the book of Genesis. Uh, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I want to begin with verse 7. This occurs after Eve has taken uh, the fruit of the tree and eaten it in disobedience to God and also given it to her husband, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's now pray for the help and the grace of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that after the tragic day in which the awful events of our fall into sin took place, there was another solemn day in which sins that had been committed long ago and sins that will be committed were all laid upon the back of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do thank you that you have given unto us not only an account of how we fell, but also an account of how we might be saved. And we pray that in your purpose and in your grace, you would use our study even of this discouraging text, this passage of telling us of how we fell into sin, that it would be a means of driving us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that your spirit would be present with us, opening unto our eyes the things of the word, the things of our Savior, the things of of your salvation and of your grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. There are some texts of Scripture that are virtually the whole Bible in miniature. And because they are short and pithy, they state the truth in a uniquely and forceful manner. And one of these texts that is something of the Bible in miniature is Proverbs 28 and verse 13. And in broad terms, this text, it sums up much of what is in the whole Bible. In the more particular terms, it sums up what we have just read in Genesis chapter 3. And the first half of this text, Proverbs 28, 13, is at the top of the sermon outlines that are in your bulletins. And the whole text is then given at the bottom of the page. We're going to return to it at the end of the sermon, God willing. The whole verse says this, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. This verse conveniently divides itself into two parts. Two persons are introduced. One person in the first half, one person in the second half of the verse. Two opposite courts of con courses of conduct are assigned to each of these persons. And then, in the third place, two correspondingly opposite results are predicted of each of these persons. In each half of the verse, therefore, there are three things. A person, what he did, and its result. And it's the case of the first person that especially describes what takes place in Genesis 3, verses 7 to 13. And this is why we have put the first half of this text at the outset, at the top of our outlines, he who covers his sins will not prosper. 
And both in Proverbs 28, 13, and also in Genesis 3, the person that's in view is a sinner still clinging to his sins. He's covering, therefore, his sins. The course of action that's described is the action of covering sin. And the predicted result of that course of action is summed up in the words, he shall not prosper. Now our focus this morning is going to be on the course of action that was chosen by Adam and Eve after they became aware of their sin. Instead of confessing and forsaking their sin, which is the second half of Proverbs 28, 13, Instead of doing this, they sought to cover it. And this is why the title of this sermon is Covering Sin. Now some of the verses that we have just read from Genesis 3 were the focus of our last sermon. But it's not my purpose to go through all the things that we studied in our last sermon from verses 7 through 9. But we're going to have an overlap this morning with those verses. And I want to extract again from those verses, and as well also the following verses, and what they tell us about the attempts of Adam and Eve to cover their sin. Now, sinners have always been very inventive in their attempts to cover sins. We come up with all kinds of ways by which we might conceal what we are doing. And especially in pagan societies, they become especially inventive. I remember my parents, for instance, uh, having difficulty getting milk that seemed to be always very watered down, in spite of the fact that buffalo milk in India is very rich. And so they decided, well, I think it was maybe a friend of theirs decided, well, I'm going to go and actually watch the farmer milk his buffalo so that I could see it and run it, run it from my own eyes and make sure that I get good milk. And once you know it, he had a bag of water underneath his shirt and he had a little tube of water running down in the pail so that even then he was deceiving, you see, or at least he tried to deceive this missionary about what he was actually doing. Sinners are inventive in covering up their sin and what they are doing. And this morning, though, we are not going to look at all the different ways that men sinners cover their sins, but especially want to look at what we see in Adam and Eve. And immediately after their consciences told them that they had done something wrong. And these are th the things that they did are threefold, and they are in your outlines a physical concealment, spiritual avoidance, and evasive blame shifting. And it was my desire to go through all of these three, but we're going to look just at the first two that are in your outlines that of physical concealment and spiritual avoidance. First of all, we notice what we have in verse 7 with respect to physical concealment. Let's read that verse again. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The serpent had said that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes would be opened. And in one sense, what Satan said proved to be true. Their eyes indeed were open. But the result of this new awareness was not what they hoped for. They didn't become divine beings with divine knowledge, as Satan seemed to imply. Instead, we are told their eyes were open to see what they had just done. They saw that this was wrong. And as a result, they saw that they were naked. And for the first time, their nakedness made them ashamed. And in their first response, it was to resort to a physical concealment. And this concealment had both a horizontal aspect to it and a vertical aspect to it. Its horizontal element was to conceal themselves from one another. And what we read here is in sharp contrast to what we read of their pre-fall experience in chapter 2 and verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And this original nakedness has symbolized their complete transparency and openness with one another prior to their fall into sin. Before sin entered into their relationship, there were absolutely no secrets between Adam and Eve. There were no thoughts, there were no feelings, there were no, no, no deeds that they were ashamed to share with one another. They were open books completely with one another. But suddenly this became missing in the relationship between Adam and Eve. Now for the first time, their physical differences also were highlighted. 
and they felt the need to hide and protect themselves from one another. And those bodily parts that God had given them for the noble purpose of propagating the human race, these things now became shameful to them, and they became concerned about them. And these physical differences that had been given them for these glorious purposes now become the vehicles of sin. Suddenly they feel, therefore, the, the need to cover themselves. And ever since that day, the complete transparency that once existed in the first marriage has been replaced by all the different ways in which husbands and wives hide things from one another. Now you see, in marriages, there are lustful thoughts and glances that the husband would never want his wife to know about. He's driven to, to erase, perhaps, certain entries in the log of his history, of, of his computer, because he doesn't want his wife to see what he's been looking at. His secret admiration of a woman is a secret that he would never want her to, to know about. His conversations, perhaps, with a woman at work that drift into intimate things and close things, he keeps these things a secret from her. And in these various ways, he takes steps to cover up the evidences of his sins. There's a lack of transparency in these and many other ways between the man and his wife. And likewise, there are things that the wife tries to keep concealed from her husband. She knows that God has made her husband the head of the household. But she secretly begins to take advantage, perhaps, of those moments when he's not around. And then she asserts her independence from his authority. Perhaps when he's not around, she takes her own reproach about raising the children. He has certain rules. He has certain punishments that he would, would use. But he, she doesn't like them, so she just changes it all when he's not there. Or secretly, she spends money on expensive things that are not in the budget. Things that would not, she knows would not meet his approval. Or secretly she cultivates what she calls a platonic relationship with some other man. And, so she, and then she takes special steps to conceal her tracks. And when her husband comes home and he asks her about the day, she carefully conceals those parts of the day, you see, that she wants kept a secret. And so in these different ways, a husband or a wife, they keep the things from one another. They're not totally open with one another. So criminals are not the only ones that try to hide their deeds from the sight of other men. Husbands and wives cover their sins from each other. And furthermore, many reputable citizens, they expend much of their energy on the never-ending task of making themselves look better than they really are. Every election cycle, scandals are exposed. And in spite of careful efforts to vet these candidates, Things come out, you see, that they hoped never would come out. Congress expends millions of dollars in countless hours investigating real and imaginary violations of the law. Businessmen hire large cadres of lawyers and CPAs to shield them from being taxed fully to the full extent of the law. Hollywood stars, they go to great lengths to avoid the paparazzi because they don't want things to be known that have been happening in their secret lives. And even those on the lowest rungs of society do their utmost to create an image that is not consistent with their true selves. Even those you see that receive help from the government, they fill out forms, for instance, in a way that conceals their true financial status. And it's no wonder that the psalmist says in Psalm 116.11, I said in my haste, all men are liars. And so examine your own heart, dear friend. Even if God has given you the grace to avoid all known pretense, even if you try to live so that your deeds and your words agree, you too, I too, will have to admit that there have been times when you and when I have covered our sins from the gaze of our fellow human beings. But in addition to the horizontal aspect of their physical leaf coverings, that's what they went to. They physically covered themselves from one another with these aprons made of fig leaves. In addition to this horizontal aspect, these coverings were also constructed with a view to vertical concealment. Adam and Eve were afraid of God seeing them the way they truly were. In their solution to their shame of their nakedness, it was an exercise of utter folly. Having lost their innocence, they tried to cover themselves in the presence of God. 
And rather than drive them back to God in humble and open confession of sin, openly confessing everything that they had done, earnestly pleading for forgiveness, instead of all of that, their first response is to hide from God, to conceal themselves by sewing these fig leaves together. And the author of this narrative includes this part of the historical narrative in order that we might all see the folly of concealing our sins from the gaze of an omniscient God. He wants us to see as we look upon what they did, this stupid thing they did, trying to cover themselves with a few leaves. He wants us to see ourselves, our own hearts, how ludicrous it is to try to cover our sins in the sight of an omniscient God. Now in the hearts of Adam and Eve, conscience began to scream loudly. And unless your heart is hardened beyond remedy, your conscience also tells you from time to time that something's not right. In your heart, in my heart, there is a busy courtroom that takes place. Opposing parties are wrangling in this courtroom of our hearts. And there's no county courtroom where there is such special pleading used more cunningly than takes place in your heart. There are no defense lawyers, you see, that are out there in the world defending people, whether they deserve it or not, that are so clever as our own hearts are defending ourselves from ourselves. No effort is spared, you see, as your lawyer-like mind constructs ways to hide the ugly side of your sins in the sight of God and to think of your so-called virtues as being the better part at what's your real self. And as a result, your heart constructs various ways by which you assuage your, your conscience before God. But as long as you avoid the unreserved confession of sin and the, uh, the only true covering provided for, for sinners, even the Lord Jesus, as long as this takes place, all of your attempts, all of my attempts to cover our sins in the sight of God do not impress him in the least. The vain ways that men and women try to cover their sins from the sight of God are multitudinous. Among the primitive tribes, external and physical attempts to cover their sins even led them, we read of it in the Old Testament, it led them even to take their infant baby boys and girls and burn them alive, offering them up to their gods to atone for their sins. But even in Western cultures, even in such cultures, men and women have sought to cover their sins. And we can read what's taken place in Europe over the centuries, how people went on pilgrimages, how they crawled up long flights of stairs on their hands and knees, making them bloody as they did so, flagellating their backs until they are covered in blood. And they do all these things to try to, to appease a God. And even to this day, such physical gestures like the sign of a cross or fingering the rosary beads one after another, or abstaining from fish on Friday, or maybe I should say eating fish on Friday, abstaining from other meats on Friday. All of these are just modern fig leaves, you see, that men imagine will cover their sins, that will make them right with God if they do them. And even those that are not members of any expressed, organized religion, even people that consider themselves atheists, or what they would just say today is not religious, they resort to their own kind of fig leaves to assuage their consciences. Everybody has a conscience that tells them that they've done wrong things. And they live in gross immorality. They kill their unborn babies and elect people to make sure they can keep doing it without abandon, without any restraint. They rage against Christians that speak against the practices that they delight in. But underneath the surface, you see, their conscience lets them know that all these things that they're doing is not right. And so they resort to, to what things? They resort to such things as joining an environmental movement. And this will be their holy thing that they're doing. Or they can't campaign for trans justice. And this is something that they think will, will be, uh, be something wonderful that makes up for it all. And they do all of this that they might feel virtuous all over again. And even those of us that profess to be evangelical Christians, all too easily we resort to external acts such as coming to church regularly, or reading a chapter of the Bible every day, or volunteering for a crisis pregnancy center, 
All of this with the hope, you see, to offsetting our sins. Or take somebody whose life is all about the pursuit of material things. He devotes himself to the weaving of a garment. His life is a garment. Or perhaps a curtain. It's thick enough to cover his unclean conscience before God. Anything and everything goes into the threads that are woven into this garment. Houses and lands. Business and pleasures. Music and sports. Family and friends. Virtues and vices. As Arno puts it, a hideous miscellany of good and evil. It's all woven up in, into this curtain by which we cover up what we really are. Well, this is the first kind of covering that was used at the very beginning of history, physical concealment, and is still practiced all over the world to this day. But now, the second sort of covering that we read of in Genesis 3 is that of spiritual avoidance. And this is what we read of in verses 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Now in the first seven verses of this chapter, Yahweh has remained in the background. And now the stage is set for his reappearance. And the great question at this point is this. When God reappears, how will he manifest himself? Will he come as a judge, as an executioner? Will he immediately carry out the dreadful threat that... In the day that you will eat, you will die? Will the flames of wrath break out against Adam and Eve? Will Adam and the whole race of his descendants be monuments right then and there, forever of the strict justice of this one who will not even for a moment connive at sin? Is that what's going to happen? God says you're going to die. What's going to happen when he comes into the garden? Well, our first parents, they had no reason to expect that God would appear in any other way than as a judge. There was nothing that they could see that could offer any hope that they would escape from punishment. And therefore, the suspense and the dread that gripped their hearts, it must have been awful. As they heard, we read, of the sound of the, or the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, in our last sermon, we stressed the anthropomorphic language this here. It's anthropomorphic. Ant men and it's of a form. It's like God imitates the form of men, but he doesn't really have real legs or a real voice in human terms. He's, it's language that depicts God's presence in this way. And we noted that the Hebrew is quite vague at this point. Whether they heard the rustling sound of the approach of somebody coming into the garden or whether it was actually a, a voice that they heard, we're not absolutely certain. And in our last study, we saw that God's approach was redemptive in its intention. But they didn't know that he was coming this way. We noted how God is patient. We noted how he was caring. And we noted all those redemptive ways in which it comes out in that, that tender question, where are you? But they didn't know that he was coming in any other way other than a judge. They were terrified. And so the first thing they did was not only, you see, have these fig leaves, but they went and hid themselves among the trees of the garden. Now, previously, the approach of God filled their hearts with joy. That was the best part of the day. But after they sinned, as they even heard God approaching them, they are experiencing terrible fear rather than fellowship. And even though it's still daytime, they're afraid of the rustling of a leaf. Leviticus 26, 36, Moses, speaking of the punishments that will follow on those Israelites that disobey God, he says they will be so frightened by the sound of a shaken leaf that they will flee as if they're running from a sword. And the narrator refrains from commenting on exactly how they thought they could cover themselves up, you see, 
how they think it, that they thought they could actually hide behind trees or bushes. And the very idea you see that you could hide from the presence of an omnipresent, omniscient God, this is preposterous. But whether they tried to think this thing through, we didn't know. We don't know. What we can easily see, though, in this place is that fear and shame made them shrink from God. It made them dread his appearance. Sin had now darkened their consciences, and the carnal mind is enmity against God. They flee from him whom they previously welcomed. Shame, fear, and falsehood, these are the bitter fruits of sin. And the consciousness of their sin, as God draws near, it fills their hearts with absolute terror. God came with a gracious, saving intent, as we saw last time. He called out to Adam, Adam, where are you? He was a shepherd coming, looking for his lost sheep. But the wicked flee when no one pursues. The sinner no longer upright, no longer confident, no longer bold in the presence of God. He can't bear the light of God's presence. Instinctively, he shrinks back from that light. He doesn't come to that light, as John tells us. And therefore he seeks to bury himself in the obscure darkness of the, sh- of the depths of the forest and behind thick, tangled masses of shrubs and vines and trees. So God calls out to Adam, where are you? But notice Adam's answer, verse 10. I heard your voice. He doesn't say, he says, oh, I'm here, over here. That's not his answer. I heard your voice in the garden, verse 10. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, interestingly, Adam doesn't answer the question, where are you? Instead, his response answers a different question. Where are you hiding? Hiding from God in order to avoid meeting God. This is abnormal. This calls for an explanation. And his response, though, it partially avoids giving the real reason why he's hiding. He says, yes, I hid from you, but he doesn't give the real reason. The real reason for his hiding was not, as Adam says, that he was physically naked. That's what he says. The real reason at this point is the fact that he knew that he had sinned against God. And at this point, he was no longer completely naked, for he's wearing his his fig leaf apron. And the real reason is not this nakedness, so to speak, It was that he had sinned against God, and he was afraid of what God is going to do. And in addition to his own nakedness, he explains that his hiding in fear, it was due to hearing God's voice, or as the ESV puts it, hearing the sound of God in the garden. And the poor fellow, he doesn't reflect on the fact that previously he never was afraid when he heard that voice or that sound. It was a welcoming sound before. But he's terrified with that sound now. He's afraid now to be in God's presence where he, he never was before. And at this point, God is, Adam is, he's not penitent in the least. If he at this point was truly repenting of his sin, he would have given as the reason for his fear, I have sinned against you, God. Would you please forgive me? He doesn't say that, though. As Luther notes, instead of saying, I have sinned, he says in reality, you, Lord, you sinned. I would have remained holy in paradise if eaten. If you didn't come and try to check this all out here, everything would be just all right. If you'd just been quiet, if you just stayed away, all would be fine. Instead of confessing his sin, Adam entrenched himself all the more deeply within his gloomy retreat. He refused to make a full and frank open and honest confession of his sin. A penitent and a broken heart would have led him not to flee from God, but to God. But he fled from God. A penitent heart would have prompted him not to cover his sin, but to spread it all out in the open and say, Lord, this is what I did. I'm sorry. Please forgive me but he hid it instead. So under the second heading, we have called Adam's response spiritual avoidance. And what he does here, 
is a forecast of all the efforts of sinners to avoid God and his word. And often this effort to avoid God and God's word, it's expressed by finding fault with the instrument of the exposure, finding fault with the preacher, the one that brings the word, the one that is the messenger of God. It's God's word, you see, that exposes Adam's sin. Adam doesn't want to hear it. It's been the same ever since. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, we have a vivid display of this principle. I want to read verses 16 to 19. Matthew eleven sixteen. 16. Jesus says, but to what shall I liken this generation? Verse 16. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of Anne came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. John the Baptist was the greatest preacher of the Old Testament era. Jesus was the greatest preacher of the New Testament era. And the hearers of these two great preachers, they were like these children, Jesus says, that were neither satisfied with dancing nor mourning. One of the children says in the marketplace, Hey, let's play wedding today. Let's have a dance. Huh? Nah, that's just silly. Nah. So the child says, all right, let's play funeral. But the rest, they say, no, that's, that's too, too depressing. So no matter what the, he proposes, you see, the, the fussy children, they don't want to play along. John wore rough clothing, ate locusts and wild honey, and his message was just as austere. He proclaimed sin in the most austere terms. So the people said he had as a demon. And John knew that unless men were made aware and sensitive of their sins, Jesus would be despised. But the people said of John, he's so unconventional. He's so weird. He must be demonic, you see, to behave like this. So they rejected John's preaching because it's austere. And then Jesus comes. He's like the other band of children. He's the opposite, you see. He eats regular food. He dresses like the rest of the people. But when the religious leaders, they hear him preach the gospel with this welcome of sinners, when they see him going to sinners and sitting down to eat with them, to take the gospel to them, they're, they're scandalized at this one who welcomes sinners and invites sinners. And in both instances, the instance of John, the instance of Jesus, just like in the two cases of the children, they, they oppose the instrument that would, that would expose their sin people that day by rejecting both Jesus and John they showed that they just didn't want their sins exposed in the same way one of the ways that people hide themselves from the exposure of God's word is to criticize and complain about the preacher or they cover their sins by complaining about the people in the church or they complain that the church is always asking for money or that the people are not very friendly I stood there for a while. Nobody talked to me when I went there. Or they complained about the sermon being too long. Or the pastor, he didn't come and visit me. He never called me when I was sick. Or that there are hypocrites in the church. Or that the hymns, there's a, I didn't know those hymns. Uh, so I don't want to go there. Or, or that their parents took them so much to church that they got tired of it when they grew up growing up. Or they, now they know most of the Bible and, and, and so they're, they're not hearing anything new so they don't need to come and hear the preacher. They come up with all these excuses, you see as to why they don't want to hear God's word. Now let's ask whether these same people would use the same logic about their favorite sport. Let's say their favorite sport is football. Football fans, they have this amazing capacity to remember all the details of different plays that were made, and, and uh, they have statistics about certain quarterbacks, their favorite players, or various technical rules. They, they know all these rules that most people don't know about because it's only football people that are really into it that know all these little technical things. 
And another characteristic of a real football fan is his commitment to his team. Even in a losing year, against all odds, even during a bad year, he perseveres in his commitment to that team. And even after that year, he keeps up with the trades that are taking place and the scouting, and maybe we're going to get better next year. So we're going to get this player up on our team. And this is his life, you see. So I wonder what kind of excuses he would use now to start stop attending uh, football games, except on rare occasions. Well, here, let me give you an example of the excuses that he might use. Every time I went, they asked for money, right? The people that I sat with, they didn't seem very friendly, so I don't go anymore. The coach, he never came to visit me. The referee, he made a decision that I didn't agree with. I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to have other people see what they were wearing. And then there were some games, they went overtime. I was late getting home. The bland had played songs that I never heard before. The games are scheduled when I want to do other things. My parents, they, they took me to all kinds of games when I was growing up, so I don't want to go anymore. Or it's, now I've read a book about football, and I feel I know more than all the people there, the coaches and everything. I don't need to go to those games anymore. Is this what they would say? Is this the way they would excuse themselves from football from that point on? Well, the reason why sinners, they complain about the preacher or the church and of all these little things that they bring up, the fundamental reason is that God's word is preached in that place. They don't want to hear from God. And God's presence is in that place. And the real issue, you see, is aversion to God and aversion to God's word. Because God and God's word exposes their sin. Adam tried to cover his sin with all of his talk about being naked and so forth, but the real reason was his aversion to the presence of the holy God. So he seeks the covering of bushes and trees. It's a covering, you see, that rightly could be called spiritual avoidance. You don't want to have your sin exposed. You don't want to have to confess it and forsake it. So you avoid that place where that sin will be exposed. Avoid the place where God's special presence is manifested. You resort to the trees of the garden like a, a career that demands Sunday work. Or you immerse yourself in other pursuits such as skiing or football or concerts or fixing up your house or weekend getaways. But the real reason, my friend, why you hide behind all these excuses that would keep you from hearing God's word is not the little excuses that you make up it's just that you don't want to be in the presence of a holy God that exposes your sin and will ask you to repent of that sin. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 3. John 3 tells us why men don't want to come to church, why they don't want to hear a sermon, why they don't want to be in the presence of God and his people. John 3, verse 19 and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. That's Jesus came into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The real reason for skipping sermons the real reason for not wanting to be around God's people, not wanting to be where his worship takes place, is spiritual avoidance. It's a form of covering, you see. A form of hiding oneself or covering oneself from God whose holiness exposes sin. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Closely related to this is the practice of Picking and choosing preachers and teachers that do little by way of exposing your sin. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This chapter we read, first five verses, I charge you, Paul says, and this is, by the way, the last chapter of the Bible that Paul wrote. He's about to die. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. You see what he says? Preach faithfully God's word. It's not going to be all the nice flowery stuff that you're going to preach. You need to rebuke sometimes. You need to exhort sometimes. Do these things. Be faithful. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul is about to lay his life down for the gospel. He writes to Timothy at a time when there's been a wide-scale departure from the gospel. And therefore, he is exceedingly earnest in his appeals to Timothy to preach the whole counsel of God. And this preaching will include the unsavory task of exposing sin. It will include convincing his hearers of the truth over against falsehood. It will include rebuking sin. It will include exhorting his hearers to a life of godliness. And during evil times, there will be many preachers that will not manifest the same kind of commitment to be faithful with God's word. The unadored preaching of God's word won't be very popular. There will be preachers that will pander to the people with itching ears. They will have all their sermons about positive things and how they can have a positive self-life, do better things, and how God is in their corner and he's going to do great things for them. All their stories are, 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 they tell these fantastic stories and these fables that go along with this kind of 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 preaching. This is what they, they would rather have, you see. And at such times, men and women, they would go from place to place. They are sermon tasters in such an age. And they'll latch onto the kind of preaching that makes them feel good about themselves. And like Adam in the garden, they'll stay away from preachers that make them feel uncomfortable in their sins. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I am fully aware of the benefit to finding a ministry where your soul is fed. And sometimes in two equally faithful places, one person's preaching might be more edifying than another person's preaching. I'm fully aware of that. Albany Baptist is not the only faithful church in this area. I'm also fully aware that there are many faults that I have as a preacher. And I could give you a whole list of them. And you can come to me with some criticisms if you want, but you probably don't need to because I could give you four or five for every one you come up with. So I already, I already got it. And there have been countless times in which I had wished I had done a better job of this or that. I'm fully aware of all that. But I do know this, that your pastors in this place, they make a sincere effort to preach the whole counsel of God. This is what we try to do. We do so with many frailties in our approach and sermons. And many times we regret things that we, we wish that we had preached it this way or that when when we look back over it after the Sunday takes place, but it's our sincere desire that God's presence and power will be manifested among his people and that his word would be faithfully delivered to God's people. And therefore, I would warn you against covering your sin by someday seeking out a ministry that just panders to to those, those types of people that want prophets that only prophesy smooth things. And if you do this, You will do it to your own peril. Beware of seeking the trees and the shrubs of a ministry that allows you to be comfortable in your sin. But getting you to feel badly about sin is not all that needs to take place as the word is preached. As we draw near to the end of the sermon, I want you to turn with me to the greatest chapter of open and honest confession that I know of in the Bible. And perhaps some of you already know the place that I'm talking about. I'm talking about Psalm 51. Please turn with me to Psalm 51. As we draw near to the end of this sermon, I want to underscore the second half of the proverb that we began with. It's at the bottom of the page. The first part is, he who covers his sin will not prosper. That's what we'll be talking about. But the other part is this, whoever confesses and forsakes them 
will have mercy. Psalm 51, beginning with verse 1. Psalm of David, after he sinned his great sin. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Here, and in other prayers of confession in the Bible, there is an unqualified acknowledgement of sin. David doesn't speak about, well, Lord, I made a mistake. He doesn't say, well, Lord, I have these temperamental difficulties. He calls sin what it is. He uses the most brutal words for it. He calls it transgression. It's violently, just deliberately crossing the boundaries that God has made. It's called sin. It's called iniquity. It's called evil. He confesses specifically the guilt of bloodshed, verse 14. He had Uriah murdered, you remember, to cover up his sin. You could go to Daniel's prayer of confession, and again, he lists the ways in which God's people have sinned. He gets specific. There is an unqualified acknowledgement of a sin. And there's an unreserved owning of the guilt of his sin. He doesn't say, Lord, I did this because. He doesn't say that. Against you, he says, verse 4, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. All the guilt is on me, not on you, Lord. And he acknowledges his full responsibility for it. He didn't say, well, Lord, I couldn't help it because she was really beautiful. And, and why did you bring that beautiful person into my life? It just would, it would have been a whole lot easier. He didn't say, well, I have, have, I've had really an unfulfilling life with my, my wives. And therefore I was tempted. He didn't say any such thing. He just speaks about the guilt of his sin. He openly confesses it. And he confesses he deserves to be punished for it. Verse 4. That you might be justified, he says. The annals of the history of England... There's the account of an English king that was angry with the Burgess of Calais. He declared he's going to hang six of them. And so they came to him with ropes around their necks, submitting to their doom. That's the way we are to come to Jesus. We need to accept whatever chastening is going to give. Put the ropes around our necks, as it were. Confess that we deserve worse than what he's done. Confess our guilt. Beg for pardon. So, dear friend, put the rope around your neck. Confess that you deserve to die. Come to Jesus. And David also pleads for God's mercy and grace. There is an evangelical note to this psalm. This is a gospel confession. He says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. He's pleading for grace, not for what he deserves, but for God's grace, for God's mercy to an undeserving sinner. So I would urge you as you confess your sin, seek that covering that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to cover ourselves in the sight of God. We have no cloak for our sin. We have no fig leaves that we can use to hide ourselves and hide our shame. We don't seek a covering, you see, of our own making. That will be of no good to us, no better good to us than it was to Adam. 
There is no earthly hiding place for our souls. There's only one covering. There's only one who is a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest as the rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Go ye that trust upon the law and toil and seek salvation there. Look to the flames that Moses saw and shrink and tremble and despair. But I'll retire beneath the cross. Savior, at thy feet, dear feet, I'll lie. And the keen sword that justice draws, flaming and red, shall pass me by. This is the way of salvation. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes it shall have mercy. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that we have this passage that describes all too vividly our own hearts and what we resort to by nature. Help us to learn from this. Help us to be honest as we try to cover ourselves before you. Help us to realize it's of no use. Drive us, we do pray, not away from you, but with your gospel cords of love, draw us to our Savior, what he did to die for us, that we might confess, that we might plead for mercy, that we might plead for grace. Visit, we do pray, even right now, some poor sinner in this room that has been hiding from you, some sinner that is not right with you. Save such a one by your mercy and by your grace. And again and again, we do pray that we who go back to this foolish way of covering ourselves, help us, O Lord, to, to more and more mortify this tendency. Help us, Lord, to learn from what we see here in this passage, to be open and honest before you, confessing our sin. Draw us, we do pray, to Jesus' breast, that in, the, in him and in his cross we might find the true covering for our sin. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.